having that safe space was crucial. You know, having a space where they weren't having to explain or dance around, you know, what who they were and what their what their orientation was. You know, having that place where they could be themselves was was crucial. So we have this population that are in much need of a treatment service, but again, not accessing it. And why are they not accessing it? And, and, and ultimately, if they're not accessing it, they're not entering into that fullness that some people enjoy when they get recovery. There's a piece of work to be done with employers. How do we help educate employers to see what people can bring and how they can support somebody without draining their resources? I get it that employers might think, they're, they're supporting more than they're getting back. I totally get that. But there, there's a there's a wiggle room of both can benefit with a little bit of support. Welcome to Let's Talk About Recovery, a series of talks with Professor Johanna Ivers and recovery coach and founder of Recovery Hour, Sandra Losty. The series of talks has its origins with an International Women's Day collaboration with the professor and the recovery coach where they talked about the point at which the science and the lived experience meets. Hello, my name is Sandra Losty and I am a recovery coach and the founder of Recovery Hour, an online support space for uh, people in recovery. And I am joined again by my co-host, Professor Johanna Ivers. Say hello, Johanna. Hello, I'm Professor Johanna Ivers. I'm Assistant Professor in Addictions at the School of Medicine in Trinity, and I am the Dean of Civic Engagement and Social Innovation for Trinity College Dublin. Lovely. So today, uh, Johanna, we are talking about recovery pathways for the LGTBQ plus community. So where are we at with that in terms of research or science? What have we got to inform people about? Yeah, so I suppose it's it's interesting and particularly coming on the back of, you know, having spoken about women um, accessing treatment and we talked about the barriers and the gaps and blocks there. And I suppose when it comes to people from the LGBTQ plus community, um, their needs are, I suppose, the first thing to start with from the science perspective, as, as you would call me out for, is um, when we're talking about a population, we often need to understand what that population looks like. So, you know, when we talk about the L, the G, the B, the T, the Q, and so on, what numbers are in there? So what percentage of people in the general population are identifying there? And we know in general populations that it can be anywhere between three to five percent, whether you're talking nationally or globally. And then when we talk about so when we're talking about assisting people with recovery pathways, what we're trying to what we need to do rather is that we need to understand what the population looks like. Like I said, you know, how many people in that uh, in those categories what age are they? Are they disproportionately represented in one group or another? Um, and those things become important, not just because we want to know what they look like, but unless we know what they look like, we won't know what their needs are. And unless we know what their needs are, we won't be able to treat them um, and we won't be able to give them the treatment the equal treatment that people get, which is a matched care. Mm -hmm. So everybody's treatment needs need to be addressed, like we talked about last week in terms of women and what their needs are. So again, understanding this population, and I suppose what's really interesting is 
unlike other treatment data, you know, it's certainly in Ireland, we know very little about people uh, from the LGBTQ plus community and population. So we don't tend to record that um, data very well, um, and as in ask about it. Um, and then the way we ask about it can be sometimes a little bit or perceived as stigmatizing. Um, again, way, the way we ask about it can is very important because it, these are the reasons why we get people to report and, and identify need and then begin to start their treatment. So you can see where, you know, where most people are just walking up and presenting at a treatment service, these, uh, this population and community are way back there because mm. we're not even collecting this routine surveillance data that we would for every other group that shows up at treatment. And so what I was kind of shocked and surprised that was that we're not doing that in Ireland, but we're really not doing it in Europe either. Because mm. um, sometimes we can give ourselves a hard time in Ireland about the way in which we do things and that we're always kind of following the UK or, you know, yeah. we often compare ourselves in a disparaging way um, that we're not doing it right. And I think what's really interesting politically and socially is that we are really progressive. You know, Ireland overwhelmingly voted for, you know, uh, the right for this community to, ma to marry. And mm. um, I'm as an Irish citizen, I don't know about you, but I, well, I do know about you, but I'm really proud of that. And it's yeah. something we should be proud about. So when we look globally, um, there isn't the same level of political and social will. So when we come to Ireland, you know, we do have that social and changing you know increasing political will but then when we get to treatment services we're not seeing that mm. um so because they do become an underrepresented group and i know that you've done a fair amount in terms of your social or your online virtual space and i'd love you to kind of share with the listeners about that but i suppose just to set the context from my point of view as well. The reason why we're talking about this today and why it's important is that mm -hmm. members from the LGBTQ plus community, um, they like women and like most minorities, they um, are subjected to higher rates of stigma and discrimination, mm -hmm. um, which kind of keeps them outside treatment. And um, so when we think about that, like I said, it's, uh, when we look at government policies and things like that, because political will is always important when we're trying to get people's needs met, um, because they are the decision makers and that's where the resource comes from. So we've just seen in the news in the last you know week about the change in the blood bank um, policies and allowing kind of you know members of this community to donate blood. That just seems bonkers. Um, mm. So we've reduced the rate you know down to like. Is it seven days now? Um, but like it's still treating that group differently to yeah. other people. Um, so while we have come far and I'm not rowing back on what I said, there's that level of political um, discrimination. Then we have the social, you know, the social stuff that we know about. People are, you know, often excluded from family, communities, their peer group, because it doesn't fit with the mold, again, that we talked about in previous mm. episodes. Um, so and again, something I always say that, you know, community is fantastic. And as you know, I'm from the north inner city. I'm one of the biggest kind of 
values we place on is the community and people and how people help each other out and it's a lovely thing Mm. what I always say to you is that you know that's when you fit the mold when you don't fit the mold community can be a very lonely place the other thing is you know unfortunately hate crimes and violence is something that these uh this community is is subjected to and just finally I suppose you know just barriers around accessing what we talk about recovery capital so jobs um uh, uh relationships uh employment education and a shocking statistic and i'm glad we're not involved in this but in the us that up to 28 uh, states if you are identified as lesbian gay or bisexual it's actually the right to discriminate or to um, dismiss you from your employment. Oh, my God. And in 30 states, then they can um, dismiss you if you identify as transgendered. Like it's I mean, it's it is when you start to put things in context like that and you look at the factors that, again, why is this important here? It's important because it's keeping people out. We're mm. talking about locking them out of things or at least giving the perception um okay so that that level of discrimination and employment thankfully does not exist here and we should be you know happy and we're, we're all happy about that but you know it's a wonderful thing but at the same time these are issues that people in our community society and globally these are the the, the challenges that they face so I am sorry for harping on and it it took a long while, but it's important to set the context, you know, when Mm -hmm. when we're talking about barriers and gaps and blocks. So I suppose to to kind of shift the gear, uh, I'd love for you to share. I know you opened up a virtual space and you identified a need for the community. And yeah, maybe just give us a little run through of how that's gone and what what it kind again, what what what's the makeup of the population, if you know that. Hmm. Yeah, so uh, and what I love about this is it's the and I live by this Margaret Mead quote, you know, never doubt that a small group of concerned, thoughtful citizens can change the world. Indeed, it is the only thing that ever has, you know, and anything that's of any robust nature that supports people generally started off as a small group of people addressing a problem or an issue or something that was relevant to them. So what happened in recovery hour? And at this stage, it would have been maybe October of 2020. And one person who had stepped up to be a host of a meeting, because we were running meetings seven nights a week at that time, was a member of, openly a member of the LBGTQ plus community. And uh, he was hosting the meeting, getting speakers in and, you know, it was all, all fantastic. But what happened was there was two members of the lbgtq plus community that he came in as speakers so bearing in mind i suppose in my head they're they're another speaker you know they're another speaker talking about their recovery pathway and their experience and i i wasn't thinking about them specifically as they're members of this community you know they're it's their recovery story that i was interested in but both of them said practically the same thing they said uh, recovery was difficult, you know, as, as it is for people. Uh, but on some level, they felt they didn't belong in their support groups or that their support groups weren't geared up to uh, support them being a member of this, this community. And they felt outside of that. They felt they couldn't share that openly or they couldn't 
uh, talk about it openly, maybe feeling that, I don't know if stigma is the word, but feeling that uh, they didn't fit that mold, you know, mm. of that, what that traditional person in a support room is. And, um, and after I heard it for the second time, I just went, well, why don't we create a space where people from that community can, can have a meeting that's part of, you know, made up by them and allies, because allies are important as well, you know, for support. And, um, and that's what happened. So I approached the host and I said, I'm after hearing this. I know, you know, you know this, but why don't we open up a meeting for, for the community? So that was it. <laughs> it, was, it was really that simple. Uh, he had the connections with the people in the community. I'm a member of that community myself. I'm an ally. And, um, and the meeting started in November 2020 and is still going, you know, every week. And made up largely of people from the community itself with some allies and, and that's fine. And sometimes here's the lovely thing about this kind of space. And when you open up this space and are not too prescriptive about it is there'd be some people might come in and they might be a family member. So they mightn't kind of understand what the meeting is for, but they know that somebody in there will either direct them or give them some support or, you know, give them some information and they are an ally of the community, but they're not necessarily a member of the community themselves. And, and that's an inclusive space for people to go and get information and connect with other people. So it's become uh, something more than let's just provide a meeting space for people of the LBGTQ plus community. And, um, and more people are getting support than we ever would have imagined uh, could possibly be. That's every Thursday. That runs every Thursday. It's hosted. People come in. And, and there's a variety of themes that uh, people, it's self-directed. You know, people are defining that this is their community and they're accepted. And um, and then the, the program or the curriculum, if you like, it's not an education thing, but the, they decide what the content is that is relevant to them. Excellent. So here we have a great example of a community within a community and building capital around, as you say, building those meaningful relationships, exchanging at community level, like, you know, all of the stuff we've talked about previously, which we know scientifically works and helps people sustain treatment and, and, and recovery. Um, I suppose I'm I'm kind of wondering then uh, about in, in terms of recovery hour then. So this is a community um, within a community, as we say. What's the plans going forward or are there any kind of plans for what's next? Oh, there's loads of plans. Yeah, with, with no money attached to them. So anybody listening, if you have any money, <laughs> talk to me. Um, so <laughs> I'm unashamed about getting, you know, saying if you have money, give it to me because... Uh, uh, here's, I suppose, here's part of what has become very clear within Recovery Hour because we don't have a singleness of purpose. And by that, I mean the fellowships would have a singleness of purpose and it's necessary. And I absolutely subscribe to supporting that and protecting that where it would you would be at the meeting for the particular problem that you have and that it you you uh, relate whatever you're sharing to that particular lane so if it's alcoholism you you're asked to talk about your problems as they relate to alcoholism and that's fair enough I totally get I totally get that um 
you know, you keep a focus on what it is so you can address whatever the problem is. But with recovery hour, our only requirement is, is that you're identifying as being in recovery. And what that means is, as we talked last week or the week before, when people self-define, does that mean everybody in there is completely abstinent of, of substances? And the answer is no. Like some people are in there and food is their problem, their problem behavior or their problem issue. And they would still, you know, drink at the weekend or during the week or wherever that is. Uh, but that's not the issue. It's not about apologizing for I don't have a problem with alcohol. You know, it's about saying I'm I'm struggling with the food today and I'm getting support around that. And so what happens is it, it opens up that space where if you come in and you are having a problem with drugs or alcohol and somebody starts talking about food or somebody starts talking about their mental health and I'm sitting there going, actually, I do that. You know, I, I, I don't drink anymore, but I can opt out of life by napping. You know, I can opt out of life by retreating and withdrawing. And it's not necessarily a helpful withdrawing. It's not a restful recharging withdrawal. But I didn't identify it as that until I heard somebody else who was talking about their depression in that particular way. I identified with the pattern and I went, I do that. (laughs) And in some ways I was kind of thinking, I wish I hadn't known that that's what I do. But now that I know what it is, I'm in a chance of, of addressing it, you know. So the plan we have so many people coming in um, who are not, have no experience at all of being a part of a fellowship. So when it comes to the 12 steps, they wouldn't have an understanding or a, a practical experience of the 12 steps. And that's fine. It's not required. But what has been identified is there is a need to kind of provide people with a basic toolbox. So a very basic starter kit of in recovery um, like, for example, I was talking with one of the women the other night. We're going to do a six week course on journaling, on uh, affirmations, on gratitude list. So one person said, I, I know what a gratitude. I, I understand the words, but I don't understand how to do a gratitude list. So and I get that. I get that, Johanna, because in my early recovery and here's how I used to describe it. I would understand the words individually. I understand what they mean individually, but put them all together in a sentence or in an instruction. And it was almost like you started to speak in another language that I didn't understand. You know, the actual practical application. I didn't get how that could how that could happen. Right. So part of that is we build a basic toolbox for people to step into a a accessible language wise accessible and application wise program that gives them a starting point of dipping their toe into does this work for my recovery does journaling work for my recovery does going out for a walk for 20 minutes support my recovery or does meditating for whatever amount of time does that support my recovery and helping people understand yes the 12 steps are amazing i'd be lost without them but there's other stuff that helps people And sometimes they need to address that stuff first before they go into any kind of program of change. So that's one thing we're building at the moment. Another thing that that's so important for people coming into recovery is if they have any gaps in their CV or they're looking for a job, 
you know, they may not have worked for a long time. Things like interview skills. I mean, I would do one to ones with people lots of time. But, you know, I run into the problem of time then. I, I, I don't have the time to kind of do as much as I would like to do. So imagine being able to have a program there where we could, you know, facilitate those practice interviews with people, build up their confidence, build up their skill. Even somebody said, what do I wear to an interview? You know, and didn't understand that uh, not necessarily, you don't necessarily need to wear a suit to all interviews, you know, and, you know, what is the job? And I remember somebody I worked with, I have to tell you the story, somebody I worked with years ago, I won't name the place, but it was a, a, a service that provided a service to people in the inner city. And, um, and the person turned up to their first day at work in a suit and a tie. Right. right? So it, it was not the place to be wearing a suit and a tie. I mean, everybody thought he was a detective. <laughs> so, so, but these are the questions people are asking. What do I wear to an interview? What do I say about the gaps in my CV? How do I explain them? I don't want to lie, but at the same time, I'm afraid that I will be you know, discriminated against. So then that brings on the next piece, which is there's a piece of work to be done with employers. How do we help educate employers to see what people can bring and how they can support somebody without draining their resources? I get it that employers might think they're, they're supporting more than they're getting back. I totally get that. But there, there's, a, there's a wiggle room of both can benefit with a little bit of support. So all of those things, I would absolutely die for to, to be able to provide that on a consistent basis for people. But it's again, it's I suppose just to bring it back to, you know, the usual things, the usual suspects. What you just described is like a micro example of capital. You know, you're trying okay. to get people to build up their stock of things that they need and things that people in the recovery community already have and have done really well and I know myself just from my own studies but you know from the broader scientific literature as well you know when people talk about relapse so you know when you get to the point of of you know you, you've been so long in recovery or abstinent from drugs um in some people's cases and you uh you end up in a situation where you're triggered and you uh, you, you have a relapse and return to, to drug use or alcohol use. Um, and some of the things that, you know, might be surprising to everybody else is those life things. People say, you know, I showed up at the school and I forgot I packed the wrong bag for the child. So it made me feel bad. And then I spiraled out of you know, downward with that emotional stuff. And that's what made me trigger. Or I was going to an interview. I didn't know what the questions were going to be. I made an idiot out myself. I felt really bad. And it triggers and brings up all of that other stuff that made people feel bad. But my point is that it's often the little bits that take us out. And if you don't know, you don't know. I mean, if you've not gone to an interview, um, you might know what to wear like that's fair enough but you see what we're talking about is the shame and the stigma behind that for people because then they go into identifying well why don't I know and why have I not been at an interview and and how that might sound to somebody else so it begins with the little things but it can spiral back to the usual you know unresolved you know, uh, emotions that we have or undone work that we haven't kind of worked through. But but I mean, that that toolbox would just be a game changer, wouldn't it? Amazing. Absolutely amazing. And 
And it is that it is that giving people a language, you know, giving people a, a way to talk about their recovery and what supports them. And then whatever insights come out of that, because, you know, when you do other stuff, you go for a walk, you're not thinking about your stuff and something might pop into your head that had you been sitting at home kind of ruminating wouldn't have popped into your head. So it, it allows people to see when I do something small that's different than what I would have done. This is the benefits. This is why I want to stay in recovery. You know, this is the pull that I know it definitely worked for me seeing those small changes. That was the pull that I, I wanted a bit more of that. You know, I wanted that. I wanted to have that. You know, I wanted to walk for 20 minutes, but then I wanted to see how I felt after 30 minutes. Yeah. And after 30 minutes, I got a better idea, you know. So, <laughs> so yeah, it's, it is a game changer and it's the small things. And I heard something the other day. Um, somebody talked about uh, you might be able to run seven miles with a stone in your shoe, but you can run seven miles without a stone in your shoe as well. You know, so sometimes when we help people understand, take the stone area of your shoe, you still do you still do the seven miles. And um, and I just thought that was a great way of 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 kind of helping that we don't always have to do things the hard way. You know, I think I'm definitely hardwired that every single thing has to be hard. You know what my mantra is, you know, for the love of God, can nothing be easy in this world? Yeah. You know, but I have to pull back from that and rewind from that and and you know, not everything has to be done the hard way. You know, if I look for it, sometimes the easier way is there. And the take home is when you ask for help, it's great that when you get it and it's yeah. a very practical piece that you can easily implement. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I look forward to your your toolbox um, in terms of, I suppose, going back full circle to the, you know, LGBTQI uh, or LGBTQ plus rather. Um, community and where you know what we can do for 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 this community in terms of because I suppose what we started out wanting to talk about was the you know what's happening at treatment and how do we kind of nurture that recovery pathway and it's great to hear the work that you're doing because it reminds me of again scientifically some of the studies that I've done uh, with, with women um, and the parallels that are there. So, you know, often in treatment, and I think you did an excellent job of providing that space. So what women often talk about is, is that they need a period, an initial period in, in treatment where they can just be a woman mm -hmm. and be with other women yeah. um, and or rather not be with men because there's lots of things that they feel they can't talk about or they don't want to share or they're not ready to share. So there's this what we know, again, from studies we did in 2017 with women was that they wanted this initial period where they were in treatment on their own. But then mm -hmm. they recognized, listen, you know, have to be in the world with men and I want to be in the world with men. I want to build those positive relationship so that almost the 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 initial period of, of treatment and particularly if that was residential and they were really sharing a close space with men they wanted mm. that to be women only mm. but then as they progressed into day service and aftercare the the kind of benefits of of being in the space and as i say nurturing and developing those sustainable positive relationships with men and other people so, I mean, I think what, what you've done is you've created this space where people can identify with the skin they're in, um, 
feel comfortable, nurture that, and then introduce other people into the community. And it becomes really important. And I think if we could mirror that level of, of um, response and treatment, uh, responding to the needs of, of minorities, then, you know, that's the gold. That's how we sustain treatment because we're responding to the needs of that someone is presenting with. You're giving, you're meeting those needs and then you're allowing the person to become stronger. And that's true of any health system. I mean, even something as crude as a, a breakage or a fracture, like you need somebody to be given the right conditions to rest, to, to be themselves, and then to kind of develop within that space and be strong enough to enter into the next phase. So yeah. I think we've a, we've a fair bit to go um, with the healthcare system, but I think that, you know, the practical things that we can do are similar to those that, you know, we talked about with other minority groups. Um, so again, just to put a, a kind of context on, on the needs of, of LGBTQ plus community, um, you know, people, people from that community are more likely to have attempted uh, suicide. So mm. up to eight, eight times more than, you know, other populations present in that treatment, six times more likely to have a depression, uh, three times more likely to be using an illegal drug. Um, and again, that has a huge implications because there's a lot that goes into people having to, you know, obtain the drug that they need and you know then it, it kind of makes them skate in this gray area and they can enter into getting a, a, a legal uh, consequence which is not good and is something mm. that we really need to work harder for they're more likely to engage in risky sex so there's a lot of my point is that there's a lot of added pressure in terms of their treatment needs and so we have this population that are in much need of a treatment service but again not accessing it and why are they not accessing it and, and, and ultimately if they're not accessing it they're not entering into that fullness that some people enjoy when they get recovery so I suppose what do you think as, as someone who has responded to a need what do you think we could do better? What do I think needs yeah could be done better I think uh, safety from uh, talking with a few of the people in that group, you know, having that safe space was crucial. You know, having a space where they weren't having to explain or dance around, you know, what who they were and what their what their orientation was. You know, having that place where they could be themselves was was crucial. You know, the the safety. You know, very much a a Maslow's hierarchy of needs having that safe place and then a psychological safety that they can just breathe you know an acknowledgement that their their need was slightly different you know not not recovery different but um just that acknowledgement that it is it is more difficult for this group of people to you know to get support without possibly facing some sort of discrimination or stigma when they're in a support service yeah. you know um I mean I remember years ago when I was in Salcha and they had links with uh what was AIDS Alliance at the time in Parnell uh, Square there and um uh, we did went up for massage and the uh acupuncture on the ear the auricular acupuncture and those kind of holistic services and uh, I accessed them myself it was just it was absolutely fantastic but having to bypass protests outside that building because 
there was just that whole fear, that scaremongering uh, kind of kind of thing. So even though there is a safe place for people to go and get support and and access some sort of service for themselves, they had to get through the barrier of discrimination to even get in the front door. Yeah. You know, so I, I definitely think that inclusion. Um, and, and I, I think services and this would be a training I did recently with Dublin Pride in a, another life that I was in. And they use the term being uh, LBGTQ plus friendly, that letting people know that they've done a certain amount of training on the pronouns, on understanding the flags, just, you know, not assuming that if somebody looks female that they want to be called she, you know, mm. and understanding that. And so I think if, if um, services can show that they've done some kind of training, grassroots training and understand that, that acknowledgement, um, I think that would go a long way, that they're being noticed and they're being noticed that something else just needs to, to be put in place for them to go, OK, this will be a safe place for me or a place where I'll be understood and, and get the support without having to fight for it or pretend I'm somebody I'm not. You know, so I think the very basic, simple things, it's never really anything major. It's something like letting somebody know I've done this bit of training and I'm going to do my best to, you know, engage with you in the, in this way. Absolutely. And I, I think that, you know, is something that we talk about often, which is just the human element. It's like yeah. any population of people. If you take a bit of time to try to understand them, um, it's pure and utter empathy and compassion. Yeah. You know, and I think as human beings, we all respond really well yeah. to that. But I think, yeah, you've done a really good job of, you know, signposting the fact that for this population, they are more likely to use drugs more. They're more likely to have a co-occurring mental illness, as we talked about. They are more likely to be engaging in risky sexual activity. So therefore placing their physical health in in, in kind of need, in greater need or, or, or harm. Um, so really, we do need to do a lot better. And I think just even at a treatment level, then clinicians and service providers and decision makers just being more sensitive, I think, yeah. to the discrimination of people, like when we talk about trauma-informed care. And equally, um, people from the LGBTQ plus community are more likely to have experienced the trauma, um, both psychological yeah, yeah. and physical. And sexual violence is something that, again, is, is, is disproportionately something they're exposed to greater than other populations. So, again, it's, it's being aware of those things, as you say, being sensitive to them. Um, and, and, you know, because, you know, it's a big bugbear in mind that we're all talking about trauma informed care. And I'm not always convinced that we know what we're talking about, but on a very basic level, it is just that it's just yeah. being aware of the context that someone's come from, their life journey, yeah. how that might play out. And yeah, cutting them a bit of slack when a certain behavior creeps in. But in, in terms of these, you know, this group, we need to be way more sensitive to their needs. But I think from a scientific perspective, I'm calling out the fact that we at least need to begin to you know, understand this population, the breakdown of them, their needs and how we can better address those needs. Or, you know, we're never going to create proper recovery pathways. So yeah. for me, that's the bit, you know, you always ask me, what do I want? 
that that's it sensitivity um yeah. compassion empathy um just being a little bit more aware and let's start to measure it so then we can address it absolutely absolutely just as i say i hope people enjoyed it and got something from it but it, it is just to try and shine a light on it and raise awareness um because i think you know we can often think that things are just happening and that yeah. there those needs are or like i began with if we're really progressive you know with the marriage equality piece then we must be progressive at, at, at a treatment level and it's just not it's not true so again yeah lots done and as the politicians say lots done and lots more to do yeah. but um unless we're all aware of it then we can't we can't call it out and we can't you know push our local representatives to do more about it because you know this is these are members of our community that we should be shouting about and we should be ensuring that they get the treatment and the recovery opportunities that the rest of people get you know it's you know that's yeah. what i'd love to see happening yeah, and I suppose for me on a grassroots level, you know, if if I'm not sure I ask, you know, and, and I ask with that sensitivity, you know, am I saying the right thing? Is this the, you know, please correct me if I'm if I'm not saying the right thing. And um and people are, in my experience, have been appreciative that I've I've even acknowledged that. You know, and that's where I would say to people, if you're not sure, don't don't avoid or you know, don't try and um, just whatever is your box of of language or terminology and, and just use that because it's comfortable for you you know ask the person how how do you want me to address you you know and um and I think that's that's part of how we as an individual can we can help in a, a very big way by doing our bit as an individual mm. you know and then that that grows into the into the community so um so yeah, ask and uh, and then be led by that community. Be led by because they're the experts in that community. They are they are the ones that know what their needs are and be led by that. You know, so um, ask, always ask. So we will see you next week or hear you or you will hear us next week. I should say. And uh, this is Sandra Lasty and this is Johanna Ivers. Over and out. Take care. See you then. Bye. You've been listening to Let's Talk About Recovery with Professor Johanna Ivers and recovery coach Sandra Losty.